morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is international best-selling author Sophie Kinsella, whose new novel, The Party Crasher, is published this week. Sophie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. So you've written books in series and you've written books that are standalones. This, this book is a standalone. How do you approach that differently from writing a book where you've already sort of established the characters in a, in a previous novel? Um, it's interesting. Some, some aspects are the same. Plotting is the same. Um, taking a protagonist and seeing where you want them to go and how they get there. But of course, when it's a series, I know my protagonist already. I, I don't have to really think myself into her so my main protagonist in the series is shopaholic Becky Bloomwood and I feel like I've stepped into her shoes so often I've spent so much time with her that when I when I begin I just step in takes me a you know little time and then I'm like right I see the world with her logic with her heart with her humor and it's there and then the, the the challenge is actually to then take all the backstory everything that's gone before and kind of make sure that I I'm sort of telling a story that fits with that, that is new, that's fresh, but you know, resonates with what I've already done. So there's a lot of thinking back before I can go forward. Whereas when I'm starting with a blank screen, blank horizon, anything goes, um, it takes me a longer to think my way into who my heroine is and to mm -hmm. find her voice, her inner voice, what are her issues, you know, what's driving her. So that takes longer, but it's all kind of, present here and now there's no baggage it doesn't matter you know when I'm writing a shopaholic book I can't have my heroine meet the love of her life again that, that's how <laughs> we really take a turn <laughs> spoilers but you know she's met Luke she's been through all that together that's happened so it's a really different prospect when I've got just everything to play with and there's a something kind of exhilarating about a standalone feeling I can go anywhere I'm not restricted where shall I go this is so much fun who am I whose story am I telling and why um so so that's what takes the time I mean well, I'm saying that like it just happens oh who am I you know whose story is it and why oh I mean it, it, it takes thought it takes and sometimes oh yeah. patience just for just for the idea you, know, you can't kind of make it happen the idea will come to you um, I was just sitting in the orthodontist's chair and an idea came to me. I was unable to write it down. <laughs> I was thinking, I have to remember this. <laughs> Machines were going around me and I remember the idea. <laughs> so um, before, we, before we go into too much detail, tell us a little bit, just a, a quick pressy of, of what the novel is about and a little bit about your protagonist, Effie. Okay, so it's about a family broken up, really. Um, that's, that's what it's about. And um, my protagonist is the baby of the family. She's a grown up, but she still feels like the youngest. She is the youngest and sort of is in, in that role. Mm -hmm. And she had 
a rich and loving childhood in the most amazing house with the most amazing family that she sort of romanticizes and sort of you know clings on to and recently at the beginning of the book her kind of happy perfect fantasy almost um, childhood is slightly shattered when her parents announce that they are splitting up and she's she can't believe this she, she didn't have the warning signs she, it seems to come to her out of the blue and she is absolutely devastated um, and then later on it transpires that her father has a new girlfriend who is a lot younger and then they're selling the family home that was her haven that she loved kind of more than an average I would say yeah, yeah. and um, the, the bulk of the book is set at the house cooling party in the family home thrown by her father's glamorous new girlfriend with whom she does not get on. And she, to such an extent that she has actually boycotted the party. She considers that she was not invited. There was a, a misunderstanding over the invitations. Was she on the list? Was she not? Not sure. <laughs> so offended and upset and affronted that she says she's giving it a miss, even though it's her last chance to say goodbye to her beloved family home, even though it's the last chance with the friends and the family and to, maybe to sort of put a, bury a few hatchets. No, she's not taking that route. She's gonna boycott it until she remembers that her Russian dolls are in the house and they are like her, like, like your teddy bear, like your kind of comfort blanket. Um, she's had them her whole life and she can't bear to just leave them in the house. So she <laughs> hits on a cunning ruse. She will creep into the house while the party is going. She will grab the Russian dolls. She will exit within 10 minutes, dressed in black, like Mission Impossible. Um, and she will not get waylaid. Nobody will know she was there. And that's her plan. And of course it goes hideously wrong from the minute she arrives and the garden's different. She can't get in via the route she was planning. She stumbles on people. She gets spotted when she wasn't supposed to be spotted. She overhears her family talking about themselves, about her. And before you know it, she's been kind of inveigled into this party as a sort of fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, you don't want to give away all the spoilers, yeah, but she yeah. learns a lot. Everybody learns a lot. It's kind of quite a party. Yeah, there's, I think there's a wonderful thing for a reader to, to be with her. She's making this plan. And of course, we know that the book doesn't end after 56 pages. So we know things are going to go wrong. We don't know exactly what's going to go wrong. But that anticipation of, of you know, there's going to be trouble, I think, is is pretty delicious. Um, you talk about her having this attachment to, to the family home, Green Oaks. Um, and you also say that Green Oaks has character. Um, but it seems to me that in some ways, Green Oaks is a character. Did, did you see, tell us a little bit about the house and, and tell us, did you see it as sort of a character in the novel that that has a character arc, just, just like everybody else? You know, I really did. Um, and I'm so glad that you've sort of related to the house because um, it's, it's a, a house that I think, you know, steals into the reader's heart. I've had this reaction from so many readers that, that they kind of are slightly um, kind of falling in love with it like, like Effie did. And I mean, the first thing to say about it is that it's an ugly, quirky house. And I think there's a certain type of person who kind of feels for the underdog. And I think Effie's love for it really is powered by her realizing as a child that not everybody loves the house and that people are going to be rude about the brickwork. It's, it's, it's a, a sort of fairy tale house. It has a turret. It has strange brickwork. It's a kind of Victorian, well, depends what your taste is. Some people in the book think it's a monstrosity and she thinks it's a grand palace of dreams. Um, I was directly inspired um, for part of the book by my own childhood, actually, because a lot of, 
a lot of the book consists of Effie creeping around the house. Yeah. And some of it involves her creeping around old attics and sort of dusty lofts that all connect. And she can actually you know, travel around the house from room to room in the sort of nether regions, the eaves and the passages. And I lived in a house like that when I was a child. Mm. And we used to creep around dusty lofts and you know, play and it was like a magic land up there. And this was in the days before every square foot of real estate has to be turned into something glossy and shiny. People just let a loft be a loft and they were big and, and you could sort of have an old sofa there and, and they felt like another land. Um, and so I've always loved the idea that there's a sort of secret house that the average say, party goer wouldn't even know exists. But if you're in the know, you can get around the house, you can perhaps look through a trap door and no one knows you're there. And it's, again, it's a sort of magical feature to the house. Um, but in terms of where we go with the house, and I think a lot of people have related to this as well, people live in houses and then they leave houses. And I think yeah. that's an incredibly difficult transition that a lot of people who've read the book have said, yes, you know, we had to pack up the family home. We had to say goodbye to the memories. It's really, really hard. You don't realize how this sort of structure has gotten into your heart until you're packing up. And I think, especially when you're a grown up and you think you've got beyond things like this, you know, you've got your own home and you know, you should be a functioning adult. What do you care about the childhood home? And then you go back and it's like, you never did grow up. And now you've got to say goodbye, not just to the house, but to that part of your life. Um, so, you know, there is a kind of, a, a, a great sadness to the book and a sense of just having to deal with, with loss even while you can appreciate that we will move forward and loss can lead to gain in another way and it's all a journey. I think there is a, just a dealing with loss in this book. Yeah. Early on in the book, Effie happens to run into her ex-boyfriend. This is sort of during the, the first chapter is, is almost a prelude, I, I would say. You know, it's, it's set at Christmas time. It's when the family is it's still a happy family. Um, at least up until the end of the chapter, uh, and um, but she bumps into her, her ex-boyfriend, and she she has a sort of musing where she says she doesn't like to remember that awful night two and a half years ago, so she doesn't remember it at the, at that point in in the narrative. But you sort of put this teaser out to the reader that something really bad happened between them two and a half years ago. Can can you talk a little bit about um? sharing and withholding information so that so that you sort of pull the reader along but then also don't don't tell them everything at once oh i think this is key to storytelling i mean this is the fun this is the fun <laughs> of storytelling this is the delight i mean you used the word delicious earlier on and yeah. there is something i think delicious about saying guess what yeah just not going to tell you any more now and i think part of it is just a sort of instinct you know i think for, for the reader to care about these two people, I mean, at the, at the moment you describe, you have a heroine who you've only just started to get to know, and then you just have what seems, you know, like could be a random person. And, you know, how are you going to make us instantly curious? Um, I think that part of it comes from a sort of something bad happened. There is a fact that we're going to come to later on, keep reading, it all will be revealed. And then part of it comes from the emotion surrounding that. So it's not just that they go, yeah, there's that guy, yeah, we had a terrible moment, uh, I might tell you one day. It's not that, it's her emotional responses when she sees them, he and him, sorry. 
and his response to her and the kind of just misery between them and the kind of subtext, but they have a rather polite conversation where there's just pain yeah. lurking between every sentence. And I think that is, for, for me as a reader, I mean, I can only, I can only write in the way that I would like to read. That's kind of my, my sort of go-to sort of method. I think, well, if I was a reader, um, and I, that's what I respond to. I don't just respond to a kind of the teasing of a fact. I respond to the emotion. Why do you feel like this? Oh my God, I'm gonna, I empathize with you. This must be so terrible. What happened between you? Why are you like this? I have to know. Um, and so I think that just comes out instinctively as you write, as well as just throwing in a little clue there's just surrounding it with the kind of atmosphere and emotion, which also pulls you in into the story. And this clue, you know, I have to say, falls in the middle of the first really comic scene in the novel too, where they're they're undoing a package. I don't want to give it away, but a package arrives for the neighbor's house, and something very unexpected is inside of this package. Uh, and and so we're sort of having this this emotional bouncing back and forth. Um, but that use of comedy brings me to to my next question, which is, you know, there, there's a lot of serious issues that this novel deals with. It deals with a lot of emotional pain and as you said, families breaking apart and how we sort of get past our past. Um, but it's also really funny and, and what I would say eminently readable. It's the kind of book that I can sit down and read in an, in an afternoon on the back porch and really just completely forget about the whole rest of the world. How, how do you, how do you have that balance? How do you make sure you're you're not just you're not writing fluff? You're writing something that's about real issues, and yet it has that sort of pushing forward where the reader's like, "No, I'll just read one more chapter." Well, okay, maybe just one more chapter. <laughs> you know, you've made my day. I mean, you've exactly described the kind of book I am aiming to write. So I just have to say thank you first of all, um, because that is what I try to do. I mean, I have this sort of theory that comedy, the best comedy comes out of a bit of pain, whether it's awkwardness or whether it's um, a, a, a kind of trying to paper over the cracks. Um, and I, I do like playing with the juxtaposition of just as you thought everything couldn't be worse, someone cracked a joke. And I think um, that's certainly my MO is to you may make the flippant remark at the least appropriate time. Just <laughs> But it kind of breaks the tension. So, I mean, I suppose if you were if you were looking at how you you know you crank up the tension in a story, sometimes you release it with a kind of flood of information. But sometimes I think you just you just release the emotional tension with just something. And and I I, I feel the comedy punches harder if you're sort of heightened. And I think that if you're heightened by distress or by curiosity, and then something ridiculous happens, something absurd, something farcical. And this book is very farcical. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of physical comedy. There's a lot of um, kind of, what can you call it? Comedy of errors, misunderstandings, a lot of literally hiding under tables and literally popping out of trapdoors. And I think that you need the, the anchor of the solid emotional story um, you need to care about these people. Almost the more extreme the comedy is, the more grounded the emotional arcs need to be. And they kind of play off each other. I think the more you go in one direction, the more you can afford to go in the other direction. Because, um, you, you know, then when somebody pratfalls, it's not just, you know, they slipped on a banana skin. There's something surrounding it that makes it more meaningful. And all the comedy I feel kind of has 
more role to it than just comedy. So in the, in the scene you described, which is, you know, quite farcical, a package arrives and, you know, it, it's of a comedic air, shall we say, you yeah. know, no support, but it's quite silly, quite, quite, quite embarrassing. I mean, I do love writing an embarrassing scene where everyone's like, no way, this isn't, this isn't happening. I'm so embarrassed. And my readers say they read it with their kind of hands over their eyes. But at the same time, we're learning how stubborn Effie is as a character. <laughs> and this is both a good quality and a terrible quality when it leads her into digging in and, you know, not going forward with her life. So I like to feel that it's it's kind of doing more than just being funny. It's sort yeah. of yeah. telling us about the character as well. I mean, I think to me, this was a book that really sort of pointed out the difference between, you know, watching a complete stranger slip and fall on a banana peel and, and oh, that's really funny. And watching someone you love slip and fall on a banana peel and you don't want to laugh because you love that person, but you can't help laughing. You know, it's that, it, that yeah. kind of... Yeah pain and humor at the same time. You, yeah. you, you mentioned farce and, and definitely the word farce um, was in the back of my mind a lot in, in a lot of the scenes in this book. Um, but you, you move, I feel like you move pretty seamlessly between, okay, this is a farcical scene. Now this is a romantic scene. Now this is a family drama scene. Do, do you, when you're writing, do you, are you thinking those terms, you know, okay, now this next scene is going to be, is going to be farce or this next scene is going to be, you know, sort of a serious emotional drama or, you know, do, do you think in those terms of different styles of scenes being juxtaposed with each other, or are you just moving through and telling the story? Do you know, I, yeah, it's more moving through. I think that I'm, I sort of write instinctively and it's just what, what do I feel should come next? It's almost like, you know, when you're playing a piece of music, you have the loud, fast, furious phrases, and then you need to have the kind of soft second subject melody. And it just feels like there's an instinctive timing to this and that, um, I mean, I, I would say that if I'm going to do a farcical scene and there's one sort of set piece in this book involving a dinner party, um, I want to make the most of it. So I will really sort of think, what, how can I milk this hilarious circumstance to the max? What are all the possibilities? How can I make this like really um, exploit, exploited to its fullest and not not wasted. I hate a wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think that's why some of the set pieces I kind of just take as far as they can go. But then, you know what, we need to then work out who every, where everybody is emotionally, you know, what has this meant for them? There's no point having a comedy and it didn't then mean something. So then we have to regroup. And that might be romantic or it might be family, or, but, but it's going to be a kind of, right, so we you know, got through that where are we now? And we're, we're not where we were before that. So it's not just comedy for the sake of it. Again, it's moving on, but I think for everybody, for me, for the characters and for the reader, we all need to kind of then establish where we are now before onto the next crazy madcap comedy that will then take us to the next step. Right, right, right. Um, let's, let's talk about some of the other characters in this book. I think sometimes one of the ways we learn about a character is when we juxtapose that character with somebody who um, maybe isn't opposite, but is but is very different. And I feel like this in this book, the the most obvious example of that um, is Effie and her sister um, uh, Bean, and sort of how different. T- can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how how the difference between the two of them informs us more about Effie and who she is? Yes, I mean, Bean, I, I, I did love as a character. She's the older sister. Yeah. And so she, she takes care of Effie. She protects Effie 
perhaps too much and like so many characters I and mean, I love to write a character who who takes a, a foible kind of to, to almost damaging uh, levels and she she protects Effie so much that I think it hasn't really helped Effie um, but she is your mother hen she is also incredibly conciliatory so whereas Effie <laughs> is all about standing up for herself you know um, picking fights having a feud not out of malice but out of being unable to control her hurt um, being unable to sort of see the bigger picture or bite her tongue. She'll always be in there, in the fray, outraged, affronted, it's not fair. Whereas Bean is always trying to smooth the oil, see the other point of view, and yeah. Effie knows this. And, and what's quite sort of lovely about them is that they understand each other. And Effie knows that Bean will try and see the other person's point of view, and she will not. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of quite self-aware um, of how they approach life differently. And I think that what happens to Effie in the book is she does actually realize quite how much she has let Bean take on the responsibility of the family. And I think Bean learns this too. And Bean goes through a massive arc. Um, she is just yeah. this lovely, lovely character who has tried to keep everyone together and is one of those who has taken on the responsibility almost of the whole family, the emotional load for everybody, which I think does quite often happen in families. There'll be one person yeah. who watches out for people, makes the phone calls, arranges the meetings, sorts out the Christmas presents, does everything, smooths over, smooths over. Um, and whether that strain is going to tell or not, that's again, you know, we'll see that. But people can't keep that roll up forever. And yeah. I think that there's a sort of shift between Effie and Bean and the kind of realization that their roles are just limiting them both. Yeah. But at the same time, they're just so close. So whereas they are different, they're also similar and they bond together, you know, in relation to their stepmother and the relation to their second stepmother and in relation to their distress over what's happening even if it's perhaps one is experiencing it at a slightly different level from the other they are on each other's side they are on each other's side before anything so I think family members will kind of recognize this sort of balance between you I'm on your team I am your team I'm you know team you but you're so different from me and I think a lot of a lot of relations kind of understand this like we are in the same family and we have so much in common and yet we have so much that separates us and yeah. it's sort of negotiating that really and you mentioned the stepmother so Mimi I think in many ways maybe of the of the main characters on the novel probably has less stage time than anybody else because since she is the you know has gotten divorced from the father she's not invited to this this party um, and so we see her a little bit at the beginning of the book and we see her, but, but, um, I, I find it a very interesting relationship, partly because my own mother died when I was very young and I had a stepmother who's the only mother that I remember. And so I can like immediately relate to Effie being in that situation, but Effie doesn't remember her birth mother, her older brother and sister do. Um, how does that sort of alter the relationship between the different siblings and Mimi? Um, and how, how does, talk a little bit about Effie's relationship with Mimi. Um, so Effie loves Mimi um, passionately, like you, like you love your parent. But I think that the fact that she doesn't remember her birth mother and her siblings do, almost makes her cling on to Mimi 
because she doesn't have those memories. You know, Mimi is it for her. And so she, she, she is less able to be circumspect than her older siblings who love Mimi and have grown up and Mimi has taken care of them being her mother, but they are aware of Mimi as the stepmother. And I think Effie is not aware of that and has almost defined herself as, well, Mimi my mother and has almost put herself closer to Mimi and dependent on Mimi and sort of looking to Mimi to provide all the answers. You know, she idolizes her artistic talent and the way that she could magically solve problems. And she has definitely sort of in her head turned Mimi into this sort of saintly character. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is also happens in the light of the split up. I think it's easy to get attached to the sort of the, the view that you have in your head. And of course, you know, her siblings are older. They're just a bit more, as I say, circumspect. Um, and they love Mimi, but not quite with this um, sort of single-minded passion. And I think it comes out of Effie's character as well. She's the type to just be all or nothing, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than, than that's, so, you know, what a wonderful stepmother she was. And now let's, you know, meet this other person and see her good qualities. No, boom, no. Only one, one you know, one stepmother for Effie forevermore, that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, she's got a very devoted heart, which does sort of latch on and cling on, and it's quite hard to shift. Yeah. And that brings us to Krista, who is the, the new girlfriend of, of Effie's father. And I mean, in some ways, she is what we expect in, in a novel that has farce and humor. She's, she's young, she's beautiful, she's controlling. Uh, you know, she's every, every child who loves their parents' nightmare of the dad's, dad's girlfriend. But she's actually a lot more than that, and we find out as we, as we get into the novel. Um, but one of the things that struck me about Krista is that in, in shaping my view of her, I became really aware of the fact that this book is told in the first person. Um, it is told by Effie. How, how do you think, how did you use the first person as a way to sort of guide the sympathy or the antipathy of the reader towards different characters? Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I love writing in the first person. It's so immediate and mm -hmm. kind of professional, yeah. but it does provide real challenges. And I think that, um, that what I have to rely on is my reader's getting the measure of the heroine in the early stages of the book and then almost being able to see through her words and to see the, the character, try to see it sort of slightly objectively because obviously Effie's portrayal of Krista is um, one view and there are objective facts, but then there are perhaps subjective views which Effie, you know, sort of puts down as fact. Um, I use other characters to try and round out the picture. So whereas Effie might say, Krista's this and she's this and she's this and da 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 da, then Bean, her older sister, is the slight voice of reason and say, well, but this, you know, but that. Um, and so I think that's that's the way that um, that I try to sort of give it more than just the one voice interpretation. And of course, you know, physical descriptions, I mean, dialogue, if I'm describing a big scene with a lot of dialogue and a lot of action, we're just seeing that even though it's through Effie's eyes, it's pretty much an unfiltered view of the situation. So, so we get to judge these characters, um, f you know, for ourselves. And I think that although I use first person quite a lot of the time, the action is described 
without a, a massive narrative voice, especially mm -hmm. yep. in a yep. lot of dialogue scenes. So really, we're, we're seeing we're seeing it as it is. It, there's, there's not, she, you know, she's not a sort of unreliable narrator who we kind of doubt every word. We know this stuff has happened. We can see what Krista's doing. Um, we might not understand everything yet, but we can form our own view. Well, and I think the the dynamic of her hiding at the party sort of it almost gives makes her into a, a third person narrator because she's not involved in the scenes that she's watching, and so it's almost like she's describing a, a film to us as she you know hides under the exactly. table and watches the dinner party exactly. or sees Krista do certain things that the reader is going to enjoy very much. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Well, it really did feel like the kind of the little like the fly on the wall or the little kind of camera. You know, yeah. the, like, like those little documentary cameras. I mean, there she is finding little chinks behind the sofa to watch the action or peep out from under the table. Um, and you're right, it is the sort of, it, it's like almost like theatre or like a kind of fly on the wall documentary. Meet, mm -hmm. you know, the Talbots at their party. See, see them misbehave. <laughs> see what they say you think no one's watching. Yeah. There is somebody watching, it's Effie. <laughs> So Effie says at one point, she says, dad's whole personality has changed and I miss the old dad so much. Um, you know, we all undergo changes in our lives. Um, and sometimes those changes affect other people around us in ways that we had not imagined or anticipated. Can, can you talk about how the party crasher sort of plays with that dynamic um, and, and kind of addresses the idea of to what extent we're responsible for our own search for happiness affecting other people in our lives. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that the the change that happens in the party crasher is not a slow, natural progression evolving gradually, and it's boom. I mean, Effie describes the split as a kind of bomb that goes off and splinters the family. And I think that what happens with all of these um, characters is, if you can imagine, a sort of ball bearing on a on a string oscillating they have they oscillate and so i think the dad has i mean without you know giving away the whole story but clearly yeah. if you announce your divorce out of the blue this has not really happened out of the blue and you must have been miserable for some time and then the fact that it appears out of the blue probably implies that you're even more miserable because you haven't been sharing it yeah. so boom he oscillates in a completely new direction and I think anybody who changes their marital status at that stage of life has freedom, but suddenly different pressures. And it, I think you are just gonna have a time when, you know, that hoary old phrase, you have to find yourself. And that's what the place he's in. He, he doesn't really know who he is. So when she says he's changed personality, I think that for anyone in, in such kind of time of upheaval, you can't really assess what their personality is. He's almost trying out that personality or he is that personality right now to help him get through or he's kind of using those aspects of himself but he hasn't forgotten the old self and I think that everybody in the book has kind of responded to this dramatic event and gone a certain way mm -hmm. and perhaps put on a mask perhaps a coping mechanism perhaps denial I think there's quite a lot of denial in this book so either you wail and you know cry and say my life is over or you put on a brave face and say no no it's great everything's fine everything's fine what's the problem and so I think everybody has reacted in different ways and so they've all just got to find themselves and 
I think if the book says anything, it's that it's a process. Um, I mean, there's a moment where somebody describes a relationship as not being a snapshot. And I think that, yeah. that we can be in danger of trying to interpret lives and people and big, big complicated things from a kind of a snapshot or one remark or one night that they behaved in a certain way and sort of pinning too much on these small elements when everybody's finding their way and the, and the dad is definitely in the finding his way category. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like what you said about denial because I think denial is definitely part of, of what's going on with Effie. And that struck me particularly, I mean, I realize this a little bit in retrospect, but um, she says at one point, there is absolutely nothing at Green Oaks that I want or desire or have any interest in at all. That's, that's a pretty clear <laughs> statement, which we find out is a gigantic denial because she spends two thirds of the novel trying to track down these Russian nesting dolls that were important to her as a child. Um, I mean, we, we all have totems, objects from our past that are more meaningful than their physical appearance would seem to, to warrant. Um, tell us about her, her Russian dolls. Why are they so important to her? And, and in what way does this whole idea of the nesting doll reflect who Effie is and, and really all the characters in the novel? Yeah, I mean, that the Russian dolls became so kind of meaningful to me as mm -hmm. I wrote the book. And when I first came up with the concept of somebody creeping into a party, which was the sort of initial inspiration, I didn't know what she would be searching for. Um, but I knew it, I wanted it to be from childhood because of those, those tugging feelings that you feel for things from your childhood that I don't think you feel, you know, once you get it past a certain age, they, they may be important to you, but they don't take you back to being cozy and secure. I think, you know, the phrase comfort blanket is comfort. Mm, you yeah. get comfort from your childhood items that you, you might get pride in something you had later on or you, it might be sentimental, but there's something about being nurtured as a child that I think you can kind of recreate sometimes with your childhood treasure. That's what the Russian dolls are for her. And the more I thought about them and the kind of symbolism of, of these nests of different dolls, different faces, yeah. putting masks on, hiding the inner self. I, I became actually slightly fixated with Russian dolls because it seemed to me that, that that's what Effie was, utter denial about so many things in her life, really. But in particular, you know, at the stage at which she turns down the party and is in a state of complete denial that anything I'm not interested. I mean, when she says there's nothing in Green Oaks to interest me, she's interested in everything in Green Oaks. Yeah. She loves every brick, every tile, every, <laughs> she loves Green Oaks perhaps more than anybody in the world. So this is clearly not, not right. And in order to get to the truth, you have to go through the dolls and you have to kind of go through this rather painful process of, of stripping off and acknowledging and, and the, the, the deeper she goes, the more vulnerable she feels as the dolls get smaller and smaller. And, and she sort of says it herself that she's got this tiny baby doll inside that feels very, very hurt, very, you know, kind of unprotected. And so she protects it by just enclosing herself in dolls, in masks, in, in a brittle shell. Um, and then she looks at the other members of her family and wonders if they're doing the same. And, and of course they are. Um, and certainly the man that she's sort of known and loved in her past, he's got a whole series of layers of dolls as well. And so it, it did for me start to symbolize who they all are 
And there's a moment where she looks at her family. Again, she's on the sidelines and they don't know she's there. She's, you know, peeking at them. And they're all sitting outside at a very gorgeous brunch table in the sunshine and looking like just a lovely, happy, prosperous family. And she just imagines them as the Russian dolls with something about painted faces is just a symbol of false, yeah. a false exterior um, and, you know, shiny, what's possibly wrong. And, and it is a, you know, it's a, a well-heeled family. The house is oversized. They put on a very, you know, nice party. They have caterers, they have cocktails, you know, from the outside, it is quite shiny um, and, and perfect looking. And of course, inside, nothing like that. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about her. She has this romance in her past that that went awry. Um, I, I believe some other famous writers uh, wrote something along the lines of the course of true love near ran smooth. Um, Effie has a little more succinct way of putting it. She says, love is crap. I'm quoting her uh, exactly. Um, and it, certainly if you look at almost every character in this book, they are either involved in or have been involved in a relationship that has got a lot of problems and 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 at times feels kind of like crap. Um, why do you think Effie seems to be more broken by that than I think than any other character in the novel? You know, her stepmother Mimi says it. Effie, you have a tender heart, and mm -hmm. she just is a a, a character who exposes herself to love who who doesn't hold back as i said before she's kind of single-minded she throws herself in whether it's into a fight or whether it's into love um and has sort of gone through life being protected she's you know she's fallen in love um with her teenage yeah. with her playmate with her teenage crush so that's just been the sort of dream scenario. And I think to come out of that and then start facing grown up life and dating, and it's all terribly painful. She hasn't really grown up yet. And yeah. so she's sort of almost behind the curve a bit because she didn't emerge as a teenager, as a you know girl in her twenties, finding love, losing love, finding love, getting those little bruises, patching up, trying again. She found her guy very young and they stay together, they stay together. You know, she's she's vulnerable because she hasn't been out and got weather hardened. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and then, you know, team that with her tender heart and her, you know, slightly immature approach to life. And she's, you know, she's, she's finding her way. She's just slightly not there yet. She does. I mean, I think she has these moments, though, where she she is realizing that she says this is another quote from Effie. If you listen to every pang, you wouldn't get anywhere in life. Um, do you see this at least partly as a novel about not just getting somewhere in life, but sort of finding a way to move on after tragedy? I mean, I think at this particular moment in history, a lot of us are thinking about that. I know that's kind of what my most recent novel was about. Um, is, is that a, is that a part of what's going on here? Oh, it really is. Um, it's funny. I didn't. I didn't realize actually how much of a lockdown novel this was. I thought it was an anti-lockdown novel because it was about a party. It was escapism. It was take us away from this terrible event into a party. And it is that to some yeah. degree. It's feel good. It's escapism. It's fun. It is also about this claustrophobic family confined to a house um, with the odd 
you know, foray into the garden, which I only put together afterwards. I was like, oh, okay. So family tension, all in the same house, different generations. Okay, yes, you know, I, I see, I see how <laughs> get into this. And, and the idea of families having to get over really very difficult stuff um, is absolutely key to it. And, um, you know, in this case, getting over loss. Um, and I think that, you know, it, you, you refer to the kind of the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book, they've all loved up. They have all have hope. Everything seems absolutely perfect. And then it's all gone horribly wrong. Um, and, you know, what I like about the book is, is the kind of coming together from a family that seems utterly splintered. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone's struggling on their own. They've all got their struggles, but they're not really confiding in each other. We're learning from jibs and drabs, just like Effie does. Well, this is going wrong. And why didn't you tell, you know, and, and gradually you get the feeling that they will just be a closer family by the end. They won't have all the answers, but at least they are sort of getting more, they're more acknowledging that, you know, there is loss, but there's moving on as well. Yeah. I think it was, I, I'm, I'm digging back into my my past as a theater major, but I think it's Aristotle who talks about the dramatic unities and, and unity of time and unity of place are, are two big ones. And you take on what, you know, it seems like a simple thing, but I challenge any other writer to do this, you know, a, a huge chunk, maybe two thirds of this novel is set in one house on, on one night, you know, from sort of dusk until brunch the next day, you know. Uh, can you talk just briefly about the, both the challenges and the rewards of, of putting that kind of restriction of time and place on something that's gonna end up being, you know, 200 pages of your novel? Oh, I have to say, I mean, the word challenge is, is what speaks to me. I, yeah. <laughs> I did see it as a challenge and I had to be incredibly meticulous about who's where when, who is doing what, what time is it, How, who's upstairs, who's downstairs, you know, what stage are we at? Um, and, you know, and then even digging even further deeper when I've got Effie in the, you know, a big pivotal scene is when she's hiding under a console table, watching her whole family at dinner. And who's talking to who, who can she see, you know, who knows what piece of information. Um, and how do you convey a big life's worth of family life, of big emotions, of big relationships, of big intrigues, all in this um kind of quite, as you say, constricted space. But I think that there's just a joy in being constricted. You just have to be as tight as a drum and just make every scene count. Not, nothing, there's no kind of room for being baggy. There's no kind of a oh, little short excursus on this topic. It just had to be um, logic, just relentlessly logical in terms of what happened when, who knew what when, um, and with this constant tension of will she be discovered at every moment she might be discovered and she has a lot of near misses and I think that that sort of just propels the book along um and I have to say I I really loved this kind of structure I, it, yeah. I I've always loved your kind of um Agatha Christie book where everybody's in in you know the house and I particularly love the ones that are quite time limited where you get to a stage and Poirot goes, well, we're going to meet in the drawing room. And you're like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, already? Um, but you think, okay, great, go for it. Yes, not six months later, they found some new evidence, but here, now, 
uh, I really respond to that. And so it was that, it was like, right, we're gonna, this is it here now, you know, it's all just gotta come to a head before the weekend's out. You almost felt like if it doesn't happen now, it's just never gonna happen. People knock your heads together. I think actually you've, you've hit on probably a great description of this novel, which is a country house mystery without a dead body. You know, that's, uh, uh, it's got all the other elements of the classic country house mystery, you know. Um, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our readers a little more insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. I'd love to, thank you. What word do you love to work into your writing? Why do I love to, oh, you know, I'm not going to say what I do, but what I aspire to do. I would love to work oleaginous into my mm. writing. I think I have not succeeded yet, but you have inspired me. So, you know, what, <laughs> <laughs> um, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, I'm not wild about the word moist, I'll be honest. Yeah. Just not fond. Where is your favorite place to write? Uh, in my head. Oh. Um, it could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. In my head. That's where it happens. Where could you never write? Um, nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um, sticking to words that exist. Oh, I, I, yeah. I have invented quite a few words, and I, I like to use um, a word like worrieder. I think I used in this book, yes. which is not a word, but yeah. we know what it means. Um, what's the first book you remember reading? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. What are you reading now? Um, I am reading this book. I'll show it to you. Transcendent Kingdom by Yar Jazzy, which I am really enjoying. What book would you like to have written? Oh, um, all of Jane Austen. Mm. Um, the Time Traveler's Wife. Can I add that? The Time oh, yeah. Traveler's Wife. Yeah. Talk about a, 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 a book that just blows your mind with its plotting and its structure. I am yeah. in total admiration. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Oh, a really gritty thriller. Um, I love plotting. I just couldn't do the darkness. Mm. I would have them all crack a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, that they lost themselves in my book and they forgot about the real world. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Sophie Kinsella, whose novel, The Party Crasher, is available wherever books are sold. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audio book platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book, or like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. At our next episode, I'll be talking to Rex Pickett about his new novel, The Archivist. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.